0: The herd of pigs grunt and snort as their minders drive them along the road through the countryside in Kent. Steam rises from their bristly snouts as they snuffle in the bare hedgerows beside the road, looking for something to eat. There's not much about. It's November and the countryside is dank and barren. Wet leaves squelch under the pig herders' feet. They curse the animals as they try to hurry them along. The pigs squeal as sticks prod and whip their hairy flanks. They can squeal all they like. The herders don't have the luxury of being late. These porkers have to be marched from Dover to Rochester, a journey of about 50 miles. Keeping a herd of ravenous pigs under control is a tricky one at the best of times, but these guys have to do it as fast as possible. They've been sent for by King John, Plantagenet ruler of England, who's currently camped outside Rochester Castle. And everyone knows John's not a man who takes kindly to being defied. In fact, that's exactly why he's at Rochester. For the whole of the past year, 1215, John has been defied on all sides. His barons have rebelled against him, demanding he reforms his kingdom. He's tried ignoring their demands. He's tried taking the cross and promising to go on crusade, so he'd have the Pope's protection. He's even tried negotiating with them, granting a treaty people are calling Magna Carta although he did have the Pope cancel it at the first chance he got. So they still defy him, which means it's come to a civil war. The country is split between a huge band of rebel barons and their supporters on the one side and John's dwindling coalition of loyal men and foreign mercenaries on the other. Right now, as winter sets in, the focus of the civil war is at Rochester Castle, a sturdy fortress with a huge central tower or keep. The castle was in the command of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, who in theory was meant to be keeping peace between John and the barons. But earlier that year, Langton, who'd had enough of the constant drama in England, handed the castle over to a rebel supporter called William Daubeny. Then promptly legged it from England to escape the fighting. John is seriously fed up with Langton and has been ranting to his friends about how he reckons the erstwhile Archbishop is a notorious traitor. But John knows that cursing out a man who isn't around to hear him is not the way to win a war. So for the past seven weeks, he's had Rochester Castle under siege. He has a big army camped in Rochester where they've taken over the local monastery, much to the disgust of the monks who are fed up with mercenaries drinking and partying in the holy buildings. Inside the castle, Daubeny has somewhere between 90 and 140 guys with him. That's a lot of hungry mouths, so the first thing John has done has been to block the supply roads. Then he's ordered up the usual siege weapons, catapults and ladders. But it's been a long slog. The walls of the castle are thick enough to withstand the barrage and the rebels in the tower are determined not to give it up. That's why John has sent for his secret weapon. In his words, 40 of the fattest bacon pigs from those least worth eating. So what's he up to? Well, say what you like about John, but he's a wily old so-and-so, and a slightly sadistic one too. For weeks now, he's had miners, or sappers to use the technical term, digging a network of tunnels under the walls of Rochester Castle, weakening the foundations. As the miners dig, they've propped up their tunnels with wooden struts. John intends to burn the struts collapse the tunnels, and see what happens to the walls. This is a fairly standard ploy in siegecraft, but here John adds his own diabolical twist. Since it's November, it's not that easy to find a lot of dry tinder to set fires with. John needs another flammable material. He's plumped for pig fat. Which might seem weird. There are plenty of things that burn. Surely John doesn't need to go to the hassle of getting pigs from 50 miles away, slaughtering them, rendering off the fat, and then slathering it over the mine struts. Well, this being John, he kind of does. He knows that inside Rochester Castle there are scores of starving men. They're so hungry they're down to eating their horses. And if there's one smell that tends to make a hungry man's mouth water, it's the smell of sizzling bacon. So once the pigs get to Rochester, John is ready. He has a team of butchers waiting, fires already crackling, and presumably a big grin on his face. England is teetering on the brink, But this Plantagenet isn't going down without a fight. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For, Season 3, Episode 11, Into the Fire. Let's just say this and get it out of the way. Magna Carta is a colossal failure. That's a strange one to get your head around because the Great Charter has become so famous in our own times. But back then, there are no two ways about it. The charter John grants at Runnymede in June 1215 is supposed to bring peace. And yet, within weeks, England is in the midst of a brutal civil war. No sooner is the ink dry than John starts going back on his promises, complaining to the Pope and ignoring the Charter's terms. So the rebellious barons agree that the guy is basically such an epic screw-up that it's not worth trying to get him to mend his ways anymore. It's time to get someone else in. John's two sons, Henry and Richard, are only seven and six respectively, so they're no use. That's why, as we heard last time, the barons send a message to Paris and invite Philip Augustus's eldest son Louis, known as Louis the Lion, to come and seize the English throne for himself. Which is a kick in the teeth for John, to put it mildly. For more than 60 years, His Plantagenet family have been at more or less permanent loggerheads with the French. Now, the barons are offering them the crown on a plate. All Louis has to do is get over to England, throw his weight behind the rebel forces and lead them to victory. As soon as the barons ask Louis, he starts making his preparations to become King Louis I of England. He's aiming to invade England in the spring of 1216. It looks like all the barons have to do is keep John fighting through the winter of 1215 and when Louis arrives, John will be toast. Which brings us back to Rochester Castle in November 1215. John is fighting for the castle, of course, but by this stage he also knows he's fighting for the survival of himself, the Plantagenet dynasty, and in a sense, for England's existence as an independent country. That's why he's prepared to go to any lengths to show the barons who's boss, and devise inventively cruel ways to torment them when he can. After John blocks off the food supplies, the rebels in the castle let a few of their number out to try and reduce the number of hungry mouths inside. John sends his mercenaries to capture them and chop off their hands and feet. Then there's the pig ploy. Using bacon fat to collapse a mine might seem like a gimmick compared to full-blown amputations but I think it shows a devotion to psychological cruelty that no other king but John would have come up with. What's more, it works. Not only must the sweet scent of sizzling, spitting pig fat drifting up from underneath Rochester Castle drive the defenders mad with hunger, it also really does cause the mines to collapse. That brings a rumble and a crashing And then a roar of masonry. And one of the square towers on the corner of the castle's keep collapses. Oh, and fun fact. If you go to Rochester Castle today, you can actually see which one it was. Because when it was rebuilt after the war, it was built on a more modern circular plan rather than an angular one. Anyway, once the tower comes down, it's game over and by the last day of November 1215, the garrison of Rochester Castle gives up. John is in the mood to have every single one of them slaughtered like his pigs, but he's talked out of it by one of his captains. Turning John away from villainy is no mean feat, but they simply point out that if he kills all the prisoners, it's likely any future royal prisoners captured would also be executed. But John still hangs the crossbowmen who've been defending the castle. He also takes a ton of knights as prisoners, which as we've seen earlier in this season is not necessarily a better fate when John is your jailer. At the start of December, John leaves Rochester with a spring very much in his step his luck finally seems to be turning and he manages to take back some more rebel castles with far less fuss and expense than Rochester took. He has a relatively cheerful Christmas in Nottingham, then sets off again on the move, constantly touring the country, trying to buy the favour of whoever he can by promising them lands belonging to the rebels. But of course it's not an easy sell. For one, there are plenty of people who, for fairly good reasons, simply don't trust John. For another, while John's in the Midlands, more of his foreign mercenaries are flooding into England and committing all sorts of atrocities. In East Anglia, they spend the Christmas holidays kidnapping and massacring innocent people and plundering churches. All the while, the doomsday clock is ticking. When spring comes, John knows that he's going to have problems on a bigger scale than anything he's seen already. Louis the lion is gathering his army and getting ready to invade. John's going to need more than a few pigs to get out of this one. In February 1216, a middle-aged cardinal is hurrying through France on his way to the coast, where he's planning to take a ship to England. His name is Guala Bicchieri and he's a trusted henchman of Pope Innocent III, John's frenemy-in-chief. Right now, Innocent is trying to do everything he can to help John out, since John agreed to become a crusader and theoretically signed the Kingdom of England over to the guardianship of Rome. Hence Squala's visit. He's been appointed as a papal legate. That's a fancy term for envoy and he's going to try and make peace between John and the rebel barons, so that innocent can hold John to his crusading promise. But as he comes through France he realizes that he's got a much bigger crisis on his hands Because, at the start of January, Louis the Lion has already started sending boatloads of his own knights over to England to get stuck in on the Baron's side. This is a nightmare for Guala and Innocent, as it means John is either going to be bogged down in a civil war for months, if not years, or else be deposed. And a war between England and France will mean neither side is happy to send thousands of their best fighting men off to catch dysentery in the Holy Land. So Guala fires off the go-to papal sanction at Louis the Lion. He condemns his plan and tells him if he goes through with it, he'll be excommunicated. Then he hotfoots it to England to take control of the English church in the absence of Stephen Langton. Or at least. He tries. The trouble is, Philip Augustus and Louis the Lion aren't very keen on having a papal representative in England messing with their plans to turn John's realm into an extended suburb of Paris. So they refuse him safe passage from any French ports. Sort of like taking his passport away, so that no one will agree to take him across the Channel. This leaves poor old Guala in a bit of a bind, and it means he has to travel all the way to Germany to get on a ship that will take a very long route to England. It takes him literally months, and it means that the French win the race to England. On May 21st, 1216, Louis the Lion sails with his invasion fleet and lands on English soil at Thanet, just down the coast from Rochester where John scored such a thumping victory the previous winter. There's no one there to oppose him, and Louis marches in triumph towards London. The capital city is still held by the barons, so when he turns up, there's no one to stop him here either. The rebel barons flock to St Paul's Cathedral in the heart of London. They don't exactly crown Louis, but they do proclaim him the new King of England, and promise faithfully to obey him. It's John's worst nightmare come true. It's also the papal legate Guala's. But at least he has a plan, and his trusty spiritual weapon. He's about a week behind Louis getting to England. When he arrives, he hurries to Winchester, the ancient capital before London overtook it. At Winchester, Guala holds a council of as many bishops and abbots as he can rustle up. At it, he proclaims that Louis is excommunicated from the church and so are all his followers. If they don't back off and back down, they're going to hell. There's a bit of a problem here, though. Pope Innocent and his cardinals have waived the threat of excommunication about so freely in the last few years that no one really seems to care very much. When Innocent excommunicated John during the interdict, he basically laughed in the Pope's face. When Innocent excommunicated Philip over his marital problems, Philip largely ignored him. So now it's hardly a surprise that Louis absolutely does not back off or back down. He's come to England to make it his, and he's going to stay until the job is done. From May 1216, there are two kings in England. The war is going to be vicious and it's going to be final. In fact, it looks like this is curtains for the whole Plantagenet dynasty. Is there anyone in England who can ride to their rescue? Find out next time in the season finale of This is History. If you can't wait until next week, don't worry, because we have a subscriber episode waiting for you on This Is History Plus, where I dive into all the details we don't have time for. This week, we're talking siege tactics and getting to know Louis the Lion. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts.